The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we're going to be at the end of 1 Peter. Um, we're going to uh, pick up in verse 6. We're going to finish up 1 Peter this morning. This is going to be the conclusion of our time in this book. And so what I'm going to do, as usual, is read our verses ask for God's help, and then we will start looking at this. As always, if you have questions, this, the number will be on the screen. 1 Peter 6, or 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word and consider what you have for us this morning, we ask that you would help us to experience this resurrection power of Christ and to be faithful disciples in him and live, and live lives that are distinctly marked by being in Christ and hoping in his resurrection. So it's in his name and power we pray. Amen. Uh, as I was just joking earlier about the left wing and right wing, um, it is interesting to consider what exactly are Christians known for today. Um, I see a lot more discussion about uh, Christian national, nationalism and that sort of association uh, for what Christians are known for, but I think it is interesting, kind of opens the question, what are Christians known for in American culture? What um, exactly... Uh, marks us as a unique community. I'm not sure that having a Christian culture is avoidable. Like, if you're going to have a group, you have a work, you have a work environment. Your work group is going to have a culture. Now, it could be bad or good, but it's just going to develop a culture, a certain kind of language, a certain kind of feel, the way people talk. Um, we've joked sometimes about how, like, especially in the winter, you have the King's Cross uh, standard issue uniform. Like, if you had a King's Cross GI Joe figure. What kind of shirt would it have? A flannel shirt. Yeah, you know, like that sort of thing. It's just kind of like happens, right? So it's not bad. Obviously, there's bad. I mean, now, Christian nationalism is an incredible evil, and I would call that uh, not Christian in any particular way, but it is associated with what Christians are known, like how Christians are perceived. And so if we were to kind of step back and ask, what do we want to be known for? If we could write our own script, I think First Peter kind of lands us in the zone of what we want the narrative about us to be. Um, if you 
picked up through First Peter, I would encourage you to go back even this week at some point, just to read through the whole book. One of the things that Peter keeps bringing up over and over and over again is this resurrection of Jesus. This resurrection of Jesus that has defined who we are, that has shaped who we are, that has given us a certain hope beyond the, the end of time, so to speak. You even get it here in the first chapter of First Peter. I just want to read these for us. It, unfortunately, I didn't put them on the screen for you, uh, but 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, because, notice this, he, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, because, notice this, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or down to verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses resurrection and revelation in similar terms. Basically, resurrection is the front end, re revelation is the back end of this new reality that Jesus has accomplished by defeating Satan, sin, and death. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for actions, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or verse 21, who through him, you, this is talking about us in Jesus, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. Now, the rest of 1 Peter basically takes the structure of Jesus' life, his cross where he gives himself willingly for the good of other people to die on our behalf, to forgive our sins, and then to defeat Satan's sin and death through his resurrection and now sits at the right hand of God. He uses that, you might call it the J-curve of Jesus' uh, cross and resurrection, but particularly that resurrection part as the shape and motivation of the Christian life. Now, I think what Peter is doing here is offering us kind of a landing zone for what do Christians want to be known for. We can be known for the shirts that we wear, the politics that we, that we espouse. He even talks about family structures a little bit, but he talks about family structures less in terms of like, here's the ideal nuclear family, and more in terms of as the gospel disrupts believing, non-believing spouse dynamics or uh, slave-master dynamics, what does Jesus' life do for that? He still does it around this shape of what Christ's cross and resurrection does to us. I think what that offers for us here in 1 Peter is, if there's anything we want to be known for is that, and tagged as weird for, <laughs> just to put it frankly, is that we believe that there was a man who was God incarnate, who died on a very common cross outside of a city. But the uncommon thing that happened to him is that his dead lungs breathed in new life and rolled back the curse of sin and death in this world. That resurrection part is the part that, that should define us as weird, not the shirts that we wear in our politics. Though those certainly are strange at times, I think what Peter keeps leading us into is what we need to be known for is we are those people that believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really does shape and renew and inform everything about how we live, 
because that is the critical part, not other things. Other things follow, but the critical thing that we want to be known for is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was dead dead, like really dead. And then by his own will, his lungs breathed in new life and began his work of resurrection, not only in his own body, but in the world. I think that's where Peter lands us. So what I want to do is I want to look at these final paragraphs of 1 Peter with this in mind, that a life banked on the resurrection of Christ is rewarded by God himself. That's the main point of what we're looking at this morning. A life banked on the resurrection of Christ is rewarded by God himself. So we're just going to see this. You're going to see that um, I have constructed a very complicated sermon outline (laughs) that is based around words that are actually in the verses. So what does a life look like that is banked on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is We're going to start out, verse 6 and 7, a humble life. It's very, very complicated here. 6 and 7, humble humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You see, um, in the random difficulties that Peter has talked about in this passage, remember what we've talked about so far. What if you were a slave where your humanity is being oppressed by the society around you, and you become a believer and recognize that we are all made in the image of God, master or slave, what do you do? Or if you are being ousted by the uh, union because the union is all built around worshiping Zeus and you now worship Jesus, and your, your livelihood and the ability to provide for your family and have a job is being put in, in, in question, what do you do? Okay. I am going to entrust that these difficulties are under the mighty hand of God. I felt like when we were earlier in 1 Peter, uh, Peter the elder um, had, did a, a great job of leading us through considering that sufferings happen as a part of following Jesus, and sufferings happen being in a fallen world. But we don't have to take them and, and understand them as if though they are God inflicting them against us. The call of 1 Peter is to understand whatever our sufferings are, whether persecution, the sufferings of, uh, you know, just being uncomfortable as a Christian, the sufferings of of living in a broken world. Here, 1 Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty, mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. To finish the sentence, because he cares for you. The reason of why suffering happens is sometimes not the easiest thing or even the best thing to answer. We don't exactly know why. Is this God inflicting this against us? Is this a part of what it means to be in a world that's broken and needs renewal? We don't know. Often we will never know. And the, the, the way to understand this is to say the, the humility of this passage is to say not, I've got to figure out what I've done wrong to fix the suffering. The call of this passage is, Know that at the end of the day, God's not surprised by any of this, and he cares for you. The answers of why, how do we fix this, what's going on, how do I solve this, that's not, that's not what this passage calls us to. In fact, the only thing that Peter really says is like, if you're being dumb and saying it's Jesus' fault, uh, you need to repent. 
Like, if you're breaking the speeding, the, 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 the speeding laws and you get a ticket because you're on your way to church, you can't blame it on Jesus, you know? Like, you're still breaking the law and you probably deserve a ticket. Here, Peter is just simply saying, every detail of your suffering isn't a surprise to God. Whatever the cause, God is still calling, calling the shots. And our posture is saying, I don't need to figure out the cause but I know whatever the cause is, God is caring for me. And did you notice verse 7? Casting all your anxieties on him. What I find fascinating is that Peter um, could give commentary on what are real anxieties and what are fake anxieties. doesn't do that. We can kind of sometimes have a posture of saying, and I can feel this in my own self, why are they worried about that? That's not really something to be worried about. That's not a real anxiety, whatever it is. And Peter here is a more gracious disposition than mine. Whatever the anxiety is, whatever you're feeling, whatever its root is, you have a God who is himself leaning in and postured to listen and to receive it. He has a heart that is open wide to receive whatever the care is whatever the anxiety is. I, we could go through the list of all the anxieties that we feel, right? I think some of this is, in fact, when it says casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, we go to, uh, that means I need to pray about this and hand it over to God. I think that praying and handing over to God is certainly the best way to go. God cares about our anxieties and he wants us to hand them to, them, to him. But I think what could be a helpful kind of under-practice within this, a sort of hidden practice, is are we even aware? How do we become aware of our anxieties? What, they really are real. And I think increasingly I'm becoming aware of this category of we feel our anxieties, we don't think our anxieties. We feel our anxieties in our bodies, we feel our anxieties in the background. We weren't, like, I personally do not wake up anxious about, like, specific things, but I do feel anxiety in how I experience my days. So it could be that simply having a, a way of silently being present before the Lord, saying, God, would you help me see what is causing my anxiety? What, are, what am I anxious about? Is it a relationship? Is it a job promotion? Is it this particular person in my work environment? Is it a family situation? allowing the Spirit to guide us in silence before Him. And then as we begin to get clarity, God's not only helped us see it, but He's invited us to give it to Him. Okay, God, whatever this anxiety is, I trust you with it. That doesn't solve the anxiety, but it does give us something productive to do with it, to say, I need to become aware of it because God cares about it. And I want to become aware of it because this verse says God cares about it. He wants us to talk to him about it. So I think that we shortchange some of our own experience of anxiety by saying, well, I need to pray about it. And then we become anxious about, did I pray about it the right way? Oh my gosh, I didn't pray about it, so I'm still anxious. And I'm anxious because I didn't pray about it. And whatever that internal narrative looks like for you. Instead, I think God invites us to say, would you pause and consider the Lord of the universe have you seen the pictures from the James Webb um, telescope? 
the God who has designed and created all of these billions and trillions of stars, who upholds them by the power of his word, is himself disposed with an open heart for you to become aware and cast your anxieties to him. Okay. We're going to move on. This is a humble life, a sober life. Verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that, he, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, again, this is very obvious from the passage, right? He's just said, what, what do you want to be known for as a Christian? Being humble and somebody who can become aware of our stresses and anxieties and casting them into the heart of the Lord who cares for you. And now he kind of gets down to the daily life as well. There's not only anxieties, but there's also opposition that we experience. And this is the first time in the whole book of First Peter that he mentions the devil. I'm not sure what sort of traditions you guys come from or if you have a tradition um, you come from where like some people come from like there's a demon under every corner, your, your car breaks down as a demon, um, whatever it is. You know, very kind of paranoid or some traditions just don't ever talk about him at all. Like, there's no demonic powers at all. That stuff is like, those crazy charismatics talk about that stuff, and we don't do that. We, we're reformed, and we got our Bibles. That sort of stuff. <laughs> it's sort of polar opposite stuff. It's interesting that First Peter has talked about suffering. He's talked about opposition. He's talked about figuring out your life in Jesus. And here's kind of like a sobering like, afterthought. He's kind of like, oh, and don't forget that there is like this uh, demonic powers that are just walking around seeking somebody to devour. Like, it's kind of like, I thought you would have led with that. That seems kind of important. But in a certain sense, it's kind of a placing of it so that we are aware and not naive, but not paranoid in the placement of this. Uh, there are uh, demonic powers at work, and this is a regular feature within the New Testament, specifically not only in the life of Jesus, but in um, the life of Christians that we need to be aware of. But it's interesting how they, uh, the apostles continue to talk about it. Uh, for Ephesians 6 is kind of a very interesting passage to read through. But he says, finally, in the strength of the Lord, this is Paul, uh, in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He goes on and talks about all the kind of the armor of God stuff. But you notice he talks about the being aware or stand against the schemes of the devil. But basically anything else of kind of like casting out demons, you know, naming them and all that stuff, that's above your pay grade. It's kind of, and trusting that to the Lord, saying, hey, Jesus, there's some demonic activity here. Uh, we need your help. It's kind of the, the range of Christian response, but the Christian proactive part of it is to say, I want to be rooted in my faith. I want to raise the shield of faith against the work of the devil. Uh, in my own experience, and I think this is borne out by, by the text, I think demonic powers or dark powers in our lives often just looks like lies with power. Lies that have traction with us and they've got a spiritual power behind them somehow. That's what and the rest of Ephesians 6 talks about, the flaming darts of the enemy. There's something that's tr that, that feels true in them that is ultimately a lie that has power behind it. Right? This could be in the range of oppression, like the suppressing of our humanity, pushing it down, this could be in a temptation, the twisting of our humanity towards something that's against God's design. But there's something in it that has, it's a lie with power 
And all that Peter says here is resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I find it interesting that the direction of Peter's command is not individualistic. It is inherently, not only in just kind of the nature of how he says it, because we kind of lose the personal you and plural you in English, but it's all you all kind of language. And, but you hear it firm in your faith. Y'all's faith is kind of, you might to use a southern phrase there. But he goes on, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I mean, he's, he's bringing in, <laughs> look, whatever you're experiencing, it is going on by other people. You are not alone. Because often what happens when lies with power come at us, we feel opposition, darkness, depression, the feeling of being kind of suffocated in a spiritual sense. That's not to discount the uh, mental dynamics and the chemical imbalances that can happen with depression. That's not what I'm commenting on when I say depression. Those sort of inwardness is that we feel very alone. And Peter, as a good pastor, is drawing us to consider as you feel pushed by demonic powers, by the darkness of this world, by whatever it is, a way to respond is to lean into the communal faith that we share. That's why we, for example, as a church, sing a lot of we songs when we do our confession of faith. It's we language. And it's not to say kind of like, rally the troops, this is we, but this is a, we share this together. This is who we are. We are these types of people who are broken sinners in need of God's help. And he is eager to respond. This is similar. It, it's, it's not uh, a stretch for me to think of this language as we meet in this context of a recovery center. Be sober-minded. It certainly takes on a different flavor when you're like meeting in a recovery center whose entire mission is to help people be sober. Right? One of the main phrases in the addiction world is the opposite of addiction is connection. What addiction does is it leads you into a deep and constant inward path of isolation from other people. And the opposite of that is not getting rid of the drugs and alcohol. Those are just a vehicle towards our own isolation. The opposite of being addicted on the road towards getting rid of the the misuse of alcohol and substances is connecting with other people, being able to share, here's what's going on. This is the struggles that I have, right? This is why sometimes when people attend AA meetings, they're like the most honest context they've ever been in. And sometimes the, 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 real, the proverbial kind of joke is that sometimes the real church meets in the AA meeting in the basement. That's sort of the language. But I think it's true. We feel these dark things. How can we talk about them in a way that invites us to remind each other of the faith that we share together? Okay, we're gonna keep moving on because we got a few more verses to cover. You guys, we're tracking? Okay. Okay, the, the third thing we see here is a glorious life. What does a life banking on the resurrection look like? This one is a little bit more obvious, I think, than the other two, but I think it's still on equal standing. Verses 10 and 11, 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, this is uh, whatever in our lives in Jesus we feel like we didn't get the final word, we didn't get the final message across, we didn't, get, we didn't win the day, we, didn't, we weren't able to finally put those sins to death, whatever it is that we feel like we lost along the way, Jesus is himself, or God himself, I think it's more probably referring to God the Father himself, who is the God of all grace, who has given us the grace to endure those things, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think the difficulty for us with these, some of these passages, especially about persecution, is that in America, we, we do not experience overt, at least in my observation, we do not experience overt persecution. Like, I've never had anybody say, like, oh, you're a Christian, and they throw an egg in my face, or something like that, you know, or like anything like, like that to me would be like overt persecution. And even as I've told people, like, like this last week, somebody was asking me, like, are you a cop? No, I'm, I'm a pastor. <laughs> sorry. I'm like, why are you sorry? Like, I don't know, false advertising or something like that. I'm like, <laughs> they're just like, I've never had anybody just say anything mean to me because I'm a Christian. I've never had that. Uh, I think if I'm aware enough about global Christianity to know there are people who've had their families murdered, who've had, you know, they've lost limbs, and they've had severe, like, overt persecution. I think it's hard for us when we read these passages and be like, yeah, we're persecuted. No, we're not. So what do we do with these passages? I think what this call is is similar to an anvil and a hammer. We are not to wield our faith as a hammer towards other people. We are to be so firm in our faith that whatever comes, we are so committed to Jesus that we can take the blows like an anvil. We are called to love Jesus and to love our neighbors regardless of how other people persecute us, whatever that noise is. <laughs> but we are not in a persecuted context. But should it ever come, being an, having an anvil-like faith that can take the blows because of how good Jesus is and the type of God that we hope in, and because verse 10 and 11 are true, he has the dominion, the persecution doesn't surprise us, and it doesn't throw us off. I find it fascinating that here at the end of this passage, Peter's referring again and again, whatever the circumstances of your life have been, he who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I, I, I don't know what your celebrity, like whoever your celebrity, favorite celebrity is to meet. Like who's the person you want to meet? Like if you could meet somebody, like uh, this would be the person that would be a fascinating, like I just love to meet them. They're, like I look up to them or whatever it is. I just find it fascinating that Peter's just kind of like as a throwaway. I mean, he said a lot of things up to this point, And here he said, that the God of the universe will, in a certain sense, stoop down and whatever, to use the language, a restore, whatever has been destroyed in your life because of following Jesus. Maybe it was having to step away from a job because you felt like you were morally compromised. Maybe it was the loss of friends 
or whatever that you feel like was destroyed or lost for the sake of following Jesus. He will himself restore. Whatever you feel like you felt there was confusion in your life because of following Jesus. I'll tell you what, this world continues to get more confusing. I don't even quite understand what's going to happen this week. Whatever you feel like was confused for following Jesus, he will confirm and establish you. And whatever you felt like was weak in your life, man, I just was not great at doing fill in the blank. I tried to follow Jesus in a faithful way and I just never felt like I could quite get it. God himself, he's not looking at you at the final day being kind of like uh, C minus. <laughs> There's no grades. He himself is coming in to strengthen you. God is personally invested in responding to whatever your life looks like for following Jesus in a very confusing world with absolute grace. I mean, it says it. He is the God of all grace. The grace that we need even when we falter. He is the one responding to us. Okay. Verse 12 to 14. Finally, a restored life. And then I want to I ask a kind of concluding question that might send us into our small groups for this week. A shared life, verse 12 to 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the holy kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, just a few comments. Who are the people who are mentioned in here? Silvanus is an, is, uh, an early worker with Paul and Peter, and he gets kind of sent around as a pastor to kind of go around doing apostolic stuff. Who is this? She is in, who is in Babylon. There's basically two perspectives. This is a, um, Babylon could be code for, for Rome. Like Babylon was, because he's talked about them being in exile and all that stuff. So it could be kind of like Old Testament language kind of covering over saying like Rome uh, head on. So it could have been a leader in Rome. It could have been the Roman, the church in Rome as a collective whole, like a she, the church. Both of those are fine options. I don't know be honest. I'm, I'm not sure it changes much one way or the other. Um, and so, so does my, Mark, my son. This is like, very likely to be uh, Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark. The Gospel of Mark is largely attributed to Peter who wrote it out for him. So that's very likely to be who this is. I think the important thing is that it's just so fascinating to me that the apostles continue to end their letters by getting like nitty-gritty on people. They just love people. Like, the church is not, this is not them trying to build a platform for themselves or trying to, like, say stuff that kind of, like, write opinion pieces about the day. This is really about Peter with a bunch of his friends who loved a bunch of his friends over there and said, here, you guys need to be healthy and safe in Jesus together. So there's this broad connection between churches. This is just to say that this is why, for example, in our church services, we pray for other churches. We just added Restore Church over in Goffstown. We love them, care for them. We're not in any, like, network or association with them, but they're great guys. They're doing great stuff. Uh, we are in Acts 29, and so the, the global churches that some of us stumble to say whatever <laughs> those words are, we're trying to do our best. Those are the global churches that we're connected with in Acts 29. We're also a part of Trinity Fellowship Churches. We pray for those churches on a regular basis. That, that, that's how we put teeth 
on the verbiage of being in partnership. It's not just kind of like random churches that we like or found online. These are churches we care about and love and have a connection with in some meaningful way. Peter is here doing that. He's taken the time, again, in the ancient world, the expense of writing <laughs> something, a very long letter, taken it, said Sylvanus. Sylvanus was probably the one who helped him write it and then delivered it. So Sylvanus has then taken the long journey, right? Uh, I don't know what your travel, travel life is like, but if you're flying, um, flights are very inconvenient right now because they get canceled left and right, whatever. If you're driving, you're probably taking out a loan, you know, to go places. <laughs> In the ancient world, it was your feet, maybe a donkey or camel. Hopefully you had enough food. See you next year. <laughs> so it was a major expense to send somebody. So partnership mattered to them. Why? Because this man had died on a very common cross and had breathed in new life into his lungs. And despite whatever expense they may have been using and whoever's face had been on that coin that they had used for expenses along the way, he himself had breathed new life into his lungs and become the king of the universe, the king of our world, to reverse the power of death. And so whatever sacrifices needed to be made along the way so that his name and fame was known in their town and their area, he was worth it for each other and for those over there. This is probably why he was worth it. We all read, greet one another with a holy kiss, and we all kind of feel like, ugh, don't get no, don't get, don't do that. Imagine reading this verse after the pandemic. Hey, everybody. I know you've just been coughing all over each other for the last hour. No, I think that in a certain sense, this Jesus who defeats Satan's sin and death, he creates a new love in us for each other and for those around us, for him himself. So I want to end asking this. We've been saying a life banked on the resurrection of Christ is rewarded by God himself. What is it about these four things that we've looked at that make this a uniquely resurrected, resurrection-banked life, right? It's good for people to be humble, right? It's good for people to be sober. It's good for people uh, to, to love glory. It's good for people to share, right? We all want to share. So what is it in each of these that is uniquely shaped by the resurrection of Jesus. There's a few thoughts, and then we'll close. I, I think that'd be a good thing to talk about in our small groups. What is it uniquely about the resurrection of Jesus that informs some of the ways we live our lives? That's not to say that everything has to have a tie back to the resurrection, but I do think that in major themes or major ways, we do. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God because he cares for you recognizes that I do not have to have the final word. Even when I'm misunderstood or when justice is delayed or deferred, there will be a reckoning day. Do I live in light of receiving the grace that God welcomes me in that reckoning day? Why are we seeking sobriety, to be sober and sober-minded in life? It's not merely just because it's, we don't want our lives to be a train wreck. 
But specifically here in First Peter, he says, because there's other things going on. The spiritual world is, is darker than we might think at times. We need to be aware that there is a spiritual world going on that will itself be resolved and taken care of at the resurrection of the dead. There is a glorious life where, I mean, to be frank, it is a weird thing to think that God himself will not only know you, care about you, and engage you personally after your death to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. My life lived not looking to get other people's approval or affirmation, but knowing that I've been promised that God himself will personally say, Jacob, you, love you, man, established, confirmed, strengthened, renewed, fill in your name. That seems more distinctly resurrection-based. And then finally to be shared, you know, frankly, to give money to, uh, I mean, I'll say this. I remember uh, speaking of somebody that we'll see at the resurrection. I remember Bill talking at one point. He was just kind of like, if my, if my uh, coworkers knew how much money I gave to philanthropic stuff to the church or whatever, they would be absolutely shocked. To invest and care and give your time and money and effort towards things whose reward is God himself at the end of time is outlandish. It's throwing away your money if it's not true. It's being nice at best. I kind of want to be there when Bill gets to see God himself restore, establish, strengthen, confirm him for the ways he's invested in the power of Christ. It's a reason to renew all things. Okay. That being said, let's pray, and then I'll turn to any questions that we got. Okay? You guys cool? God, as we have looked at this passage and just consider the end of 1 Peter, I ask that you would help us to live a life that's banked on the resurrection of Christ, that you will yourself reward, because you are renewing all people in Jesus, because you love us and care for us. So to his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.